Well, today I begin a new series. A series I'm calling, Show Us the Father. Those words are really the essence of Jesus' heart. They're the essence of Triumphant Grace's heart as well. When we see the Father for who He really is in all of His goodness, all of His amazing glory, something begins to change on the inside of us. Revealing the Father was something the religious people didn't know about. They hadn't heard about. He was God to them. And God said, basically, okay, it's time to just strip away that I'm God. That doesn't change. But I want you to know me now as Father. That changes everything. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I'm Mark. But when my kids call me Father or Daddy or whatever it may be, Dad, whatever it may be, that brings them up close and personal to me. They have my attention in a moment. I'm captivated by their beauty. So we live at a time that makes you want to ask the question, where are the fathers? Where are the fathers at? The fatherless generation that we're living in right now has honestly caused deep emotional and psychological damage to our children and then what happens is these children eventually grow up and they become parents and then they pass it along uh, through their own fathering or lack of fathering skills and so because the heart of the father was not modeled because the father was either absent or just didn't pay any attention to his children they don't know how to nurture. They don't know how to cultivate a, a father-son relationship. And I believe that is one of the culprits, if you will, that has put the world in the situation that it's in. The same is true in the spiritual realm. I've been in church since I was a little boy. And although I don't know as though I could recall any of the messages as a kid, but I do know that God was not consistently modeled as a loving and caring and compassionate Father, gracious and tender-hearted, And that's who He is. He's all of those things. He's loving. He's gracious. He's kind. He's tender-hearted, compassionate. And so I walked away from the church as a teenager. I never went back to church until I was born again in my mid-30s. I wasn't mad at anybody at church. I just didn't think they offered anything that would help me, would change my life. I felt like chasing my career and chasing whatever else came along, I felt like that was good enough for me. That I just didn't need God. I was doing fine without Him. And so what happened is, over time, as this gets injected into our society, His virtues end up missing. They end up absent from the fabric of many homes, and as a result, it ends up missing in the hearts of our children. I don't know as though you can explain the violence that we're seeing worldwide and the lack of morals that we're seeing and witnessing today any better than by saying that the fathers were missing from the homes. I mean, not only in the natural sense, but also in the spiritual sense. Father God was missing from the home. The Natural fathers were missing from the home. So through this series of messages, I want us to see the incontrovertible. I'm talking about the undeniable. I'm talking about the unparalleled virtues of the Father's heart. I'm talking about virtues that were supposed to shine like the morning sun, but somehow they've been clouded over through the traditions of men. The traditions of men is just a gigantic rain cloud on a picnic day. That's all it is, friends. Clouded over by the traditions of men, hidden from man's viewpoint. Would you like to know why the heart of the Father is so misinterpreted? It's primarily because of two things. One of those things, listen to me carefully. I know I'm going to sound like a broken record. 
But one of those things is old covenant ideology. There are people, I said to Valerie, that like different amounts of salt on their food. Some people like a lot on their food, others just sparingly, some maybe not at all. And I have found that's kind of the way it is with people that have mixed the old covenant with the new covenant. Some are not too deep into it, but yet if you listen long enough, you can hear it coming through. Others are just very, very steeped into it. It's a hard thing to shake. I get it. Like Mary said this morning, it's a drip. It's a slow drip. It's a consistent, constant drip. Eventually, what it does is it flushes out all of that old covenant ideology as it's replaced by this new covenant of grace. So old covenant theology, the old covenant law, is one of the greatest culprits. And the other one is, listen to me carefully, is because we have not rightly divided the word of truth. We have not rightly divided things into a biblical context. So we read lightly across the scriptures. This is how it works. We read across the scriptures, and then our mind wants to store that in an A to Z file somewhere. And what happens eventually, though, is we make that into a doctrine, whether that's our church doctrine as the pastor, or that's just our personal viewpoint and belief system. We have made that into a doctrine, and eventually what happens is that doctrine becomes a stronghold. And when you try to tell someone anything different, they just don't want to budge from what they already believe to be true. And so what happens is we believe things to be true, even though they're not. And again, they get built into this tower. They get built into this big stronghold, if you will. So today, I want to minister through the first message of this series, a message I'm calling the virtue of oneness. How can the virtues, the virtues of a God that is so big, so mighty, so strong, so smart, how can the virtues of a God that's so loving and kind and compassionate, how can the virtues of someone like that be hidden? That's a good question, isn't it? You say, well, how do you know they're hidden? Friends, Go talk to somebody on the street one time. In fact, talk to enough people in the church, you'll find even in the church, don't see the Father in all of these virtues. So I know for a fact these virtues are hidden from a lot of people. I've said to a man in times past, I said, you know, God loves you. He said, no, he doesn't. I said, yes, he does. Listen, it's hard to have an argument about God loves you, right? It's kind of hard to have a debate about that. If someone tells you, no, he doesn't, yes, he does. You feel like you get into this tug of war. I'm telling you, there are things that have come along. The problems in life, the indoctrinations in life, and they have hidden this marvelous, creative God from our eyes. Now, let me ask you another question. How can the God who articulates so well. Come on, God's the one who knows all the languages. We know maybe one, and we don't even know all the words in the one language. God knows all the languages. And if you wanted him to speak every other word in a different language, there'd be no hesitation. He'd just rattle it right off. He's articulate. He's eloquent. How can the God who speaks with such clarity be misunderstood? <laughs> Those are good questions, aren't they? Come on, how can the God that is so big be hidden? How can the God that speaks with such clarity be misunderstood? Big God, hidden. Big orator, misunderstood. The virtues of the Father are hidden and His heart is misunderstood because people have been taught. People have been instructed. People have been indoctrinated to see the Father's virtue through the lens of the Old Covenant and through the lens of insufficient biblical context. Now, I'm trying to go slow here for a second because I know these are some phrases we don't hear very often. I said there's two things, really. One is through insufficient context, and the other one is through Old Covenant Mindset, Old Covenant ideology. When I talk about insufficient context, I'm talking about 
when we study the Bible, when we look at the Bible, when we read the Bible, there's a context that everything's been written in. There's a flow. Listen, if a maple leaf ends up in my yard and yet there are no maple trees around, I don't look at that maple leaf and go, well, that just appeared there. That didn't come from anywhere. No, that maple leaf has an origin. It might be a mile away. It might have been up in a twister somewhere, but that had an origin somewhere. And so when we look at the word, we have to take it in biblical context. And so often the word is taken out of context. I'm talking about historical context. I'm talking about cultural context and literal context. The context, how it shows up in Scripture, the Scriptures before it and the Scriptures after it. And without looking at the context of Scripture, you know what you're left to? You're left to your own imagination. You're left to your own interpretations. And interpretations are exactly what becomes church doctrine. It's how you interpret what you see that becomes, by somebody, your church belief system, your church doctrine, if you will. Passages of scriptures that were written for our edification, our encouragement, when taught incorrectly, absolutely have the opposite effect. They frighten us. They condemn us. They wound us but yet they were meant to encourage us. They were meant to put a fresh wind, a tailwind, if you will, but suddenly it feels like you're bucking a headwind with that scripture. So when a person reads a scripture, let me give you an example. When a person reads a scripture like, let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus said those words, didn't he? He said, let not your hearts be troubled. We celebrate on a scripture like that, don't we? And we think, wow, Yes, I love that. But then when we get over into another scripture where it says, you have fallen from grace. And then we go, wait a minute. That scripture right there hijacked the first one where it said, let not your hearts be troubled. Now I'm stuck somewhere in the middle. I don't know what to believe. Well, again, biblical context, history, cultural, literal context. You see, what it does is when you come across a scripture like that and you have no biblical context, is it creates a conundrum, if you will, in your heart. It creates this fighting place. It's like a boxing ring if you don't have the context because it begins to bounce around like a pinball machine and it's all over the place in your heart. But if a person understands these two passages I just spoke about in their context, there's no confusion then. There's no mystery, there's no paradox, and there's certainly no conundrum, okay? All right, if I was to ask you, what is one plus one, what would your answer be? <laughs> you think I'm going to set you up, don't you? What is one plus one? The answer is, naturally, it would be two, right? Would you be surprised to learn that one plus one doesn't always equal two? Would you be surprised to learn that? You see, there are occasions where one becomes one with one. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Imagine I took an eyedropper and I put a drop of water on the counter. One drop of water. And I asked you to come in from the other room. And I said to you, Jim, what do you see? One drop of water. And then I said, Jim, go away for a moment. And then I took that same eyedropper and I put another drop right on top of that drop. And then I called you back and I said, Jim, what do you see now? You said, I still see one drop. There are times when one plus one still equals one. One drop of water added to another drop of water is still one drop of water. Now that drop may have gotten a little bit bigger, but it is still one drop of water. You say, well, Pastor Mark, that's not fair. <laughs> you withheld an important detail. I certainly did. You know why I did that? Because I wanted you to see context. And because you were missing context, there was no way for you to end up with the same answer I ended up with. Now, does the drop of water illustration bring clarity to what Jesus meant when he said, he that hath seen me hath seen my father. You've seen the father. In other words, we may be two members of the Godhead, but in essence, we are one 
in union. And who did Jesus say this to? Well, he said it to his disciples. Philip and Thomas were standing there. And in John chapter 14, verses 6 through 10, we find these words. Jesus answered and said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Now, why would Jesus say that? Well, no context here. You don't understand that Thomas just said, we don't know the way just before this. See, you know your Bible. You've been in church long enough to probably go, yeah, Thomas said something, didn't he? But if you don't know your Bible and you start with verse 6, this doesn't make as much sense. Jesus just told him about the way, and he said, Thomas said, well, we don't know the way. Show us the way. And so Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. Do you see this power of oneness here? Do you see that work? He said, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. I love that. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. Oh boy, some people just don't listen, do they? Jesus just got through telling them, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And you just said, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? And then he makes it more plain. He said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing the work. Friends, we are one with Christ. We are one with the Father. We are one with the Holy Spirit. We are one. We are in union with the Godhead. If I were to show you a glass filled with water, there would be no way for you to know whether it took me five seconds under a faucet to fill that glass or it took me 30 minutes with an eyedropper, one drop at a time. There'd be no way for you to know. You know why? Because all of the water in that glass has become one with one another. It's all one. There's nothing that separates one drop from another. They have become one together. Now, when we think about scriptures like 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17, the Apostle Paul wrote these words. He said, but he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. In other words, we're one spirit with the Lord. We don't have the old spirit man in us anymore. How many spirits do you see there? One spirit. He that is joined to the Lord through the new birth, you are one with him in spirit. There is no two separate spirit stuff going on here. There is one spirit living on the inside of you, friends. One drop of water added to one drop of water is still one drop of water. And understanding the truth that we are one with Christ, you know what it does? It brings liberty. It brings freedom. It brings the Father back into our homes. It separates the rain clouds from the morning sun. Knowing that we are one with Christ heals emotional and physical wounds. And it helps us to grasp how God the Father can see us even as he sees Jesus. Why? Right there on the screen. We are one spirit with the Lord. So when the Father looks at us, he sees the Lord. When the Father looks at the Lord, he sees us. We are never absent from him. We are never alone, and we can never be separated from Christ. So knowing that we are one with Christ, you know what it also does? It helps us to comprehend how the Father can never forsake us. You see, 
in order for the father to forsake us, he would have to forsake his son. Why? Look at the scripture again. We are one in the spirit with the Lord. So if the father turns his back on me, he has to turn his back on Christ. If he turns his back on Christ, you have no hope. You are most miserably lost. But he will never do that. He will never forsake his son. His son finished the work. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being sanctified. He'll never forsake his son, and we are one with him. Friends, this is the virtue. It's the quality, if you will, of oneness. The oneness mindset that we are one with our Father. We are one with Christ. We are one with the sweet Holy Spirit. That's the virtue of oneness speaking to us. In John chapter 17 and verse 22, we find these words. Jesus is talking. And this is that big, big prayer in John. I only pulled this verse out here for now, but Jesus said, And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them. Not two separate glories. The very glory that you gave me, I gave them. We didn't take any taxes out of it. We didn't set any aside. The very same glory you gave me, I gave them. Can you imagine how awesome that glory is? The glory that you gave me, Jesus said I gave to them. And then he says that they may be one. Do you see this language? Here's his heart, that they may be one even as we are one. In other words, just exactly like we are one, that they may be one like us. And of course, that word glory is the Greek word doxa. It talks about the view and opinion. So the view and opinion that Jesus has about his father is the same view and opinion I should have about his father as long as I'm instructed right. And believe me, friends, I'm still allowing the Holy Spirit to undo a lifetime of programming with erroneous doctrines and old covenant mindsets. It takes a long time, but I'm not where I used to be. It's the view and opinion that we have toward God, but it's literally the view and opinion. What it means is the view and opinion of every grace that God gave Jesus. And every grace that he gives us, that same view and opinion is what I have of my father, that that's what I can expect from him. I can expect graces to be showered with his mercy, to be showered with his kindness, to be showered with his acceptance, to be showered with his glory. So we are one with Christ not just one another, but we are one with Jesus. We are one with the Holy Spirit. We are one with the Father. Jesus is the one who came to give us, listen, the Spirit of grace. And what else? To show us the Father. That was his heart. It was almost as though Jesus had asked us the question. Same thing he asked Peter. Do you love me? <laughs> Do you love me? Come on. Imagine Jesus standing in front of you right now going, do you love me? And then you would respond with yes. He would probably say, God, then you are going to love my father. He's just like me. I'm just like him. You're going to love my father. In fact, there's no such thing as loving me and not loving my father. And there's no such thing as loving my father and not loving me. I'm an exact representation of my father. Friends, that is the virtue of oneness. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 23, 24, and 25, we find these words. No one who denies the Son has the Father. You want to know why? Because the Son and the Father are one. You deny the Son, you've denied the Father. Very plain here, friends. I don't care what religion you're talking about in the world. Those who deny Christ do not have the Father. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. When it means acknowledge, it means literally to trust in the Son. It means to believe in the Son. It's not just to acknowledge, like tip your hat to. No, it means to put your trust in there. And whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Why? Because the Son and the Father are one. And then he says, keep thinking about the message you 
first heard. I love that. Friends, sometimes we have to go back to the basics. How were we saved? Every one of us were saved by grace through faith. That is the message we heard. We heard you're accepted today. Keep going back to the message you first heard. And it says, and you will always be one in your heart, in your heart of hearts, in your soul, in your mind, in your emotional realm, in that dwelling place. He says, you'll always feel like you're one. You'll always see yourself as one. When you make it about the original foundation, you were saved by grace through faith. And you will always be one in your heart with the son and with the father. I love that. And this is what Christ himself promised to give us eternal life. Amen. Seeing through the lens of the old covenant and insufficient context is as confusing and dangerous as attempting to drive an automobile from the East Coast to the West Coast while continuously looking through binoculars. <laughs> How many of you know that would be a recipe for a wreck? You're going to hurt somebody. You're going to hurt yourself because I don't care if you take those binoculars and you look through them one way, they, everything will be magnified and too close for you. You turn them around, look them through the other way, everything will be too far away from you. In other words, both are extremes and neither are reality. You're going to get some things wrong if that's how you're navigating in life. And you would not know how to negotiate along the journey. And so in our search of the scriptures, we have gotten a lot of things wrong. I got a lot of things wrong. Some of the things I say today, I may not think about them the exact same way five years from now. We are learning as we go. But when we make this thing all about Christ, we make this all about his finished work. We don't have to split hairs, friends. So we've gotten some things wrong. And along this journey, we've overlooked what we should have been thinking about at the beginning, at first, which was the grace of God. We have cast our nets far and wide to provide for our own selves, and we have come up empty. Why? Because we were working in our own strength rather than resting in the virtue of the oneness in Christ. You ever feel that way? You're just wearing yourself out because you are casting nets all day long, trying to catch this and that, trying to manage your own stuff. Life is busy. I get it. We need a net sometimes. But if we are just casting our net in our own strength to provide for ourselves, we are not resting in the oneness of Christ. We see a story about that in John chapter 21, verses 1 through 12. This is post-cross. Let me set this up. So Jesus has been crucified. He has been raised from the dead. He has met with his disciples, but then he has went his way. Remember, he stayed 40 days after he was resurrected. And so Jesus is alive. But the disciples decide when Jesus suddenly isn't present to go back to what they're familiar with. And sometimes I think that's what we do too. We Rather than learn new truths, rather than see God differently, we have this way of defaulting back to what we've already known. We go back to what used to be our past, the place we came from. And that's exactly what the disciples did. They almost just didn't know how to function without Jesus. And so we find these words, beginning at verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James, that's John, and two other disciples were together. <laughs> Here's what Peter said. He said, I'm going out to fish. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. They're a hundred yards from the shore. They have no idea that's Jesus. And so Jesus calls out to them and he says, friends, I love this, the very first word in the midst of their failure. They've been scattered in the midst of them returning back to what they came from. When Jesus had groomed them for three and a half years into beautiful disciples and they returned to 
what they were familiar with. And so they've failed in a sense, but Jesus looks beyond the failure and he still calls them friends. Don't you see that in the scriptures? He didn't call them criminals. He didn't beat them up in any sort. He said, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. Man, I'd write a check for $1,000 just to hear how they said that. <laughs> I'm sure it sounded like, no. You just see the wagging of the head. No. They've been out there all night long. They're beat. They're tired. No, they answered. He said, cast your net to the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now, friends, look, they don't know this is Jesus. They know they've spent the entire night fishing. Their muscles are spent. And here's a guy 100 yards away. How do I know that? Scriptures tell us. 100 yards away. It's a football field from one end zone to another end zone. Now, Valerie, you cut hair. Mary, you cut hair. I want to ask you a question. Do you think you could recognize a bad haircut at 300 feet? You couldn't do it, could you? How would Jesus know that there's fish on the right side of the boat? Well, because he's Jesus. He's in touch with the oneness of his father. And the father is with x-ray vision peering down into the water. And he can see the fish. And he whispers into his son's heart, son, they're on the right side of the boat. And Jesus says, friends, have you got any fish? No, we ain't got any fish. Well, cast your nets on the right side of the boat. Listen, I was thinking about that earlier this morning. I was thinking, man, if a stranger was standing on the shore and tried to give me that instruction, I would just think he's a crazy man. There's just no way I would follow that kind of instruction. We're the professional fishermen. What do you know? And how would you know what's on the right side of my boat? But see, there's something about it when we hang around with Jesus long enough. The oneness that's on him and in him begins to get on and in us too, right? You see, friends, it wasn't just about the information. There was a revelation that was taking place. And only the Spirit of God can do this kind of stuff. Only the Spirit of God can do this to reveal in your heart that he's speaking truth. Let's cast our net on the right side of the boat. And it says, when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now they have a direct revelation, not only of where the fish are at, but they know this is Christ. They said, that's the Lord. It's the Lord. Next scriptures. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. I told you it was in the scriptures, friends. 300 feet! Friends, I have stood in one end zone of a football field, and I've looked to the very other end of a football field and looked at the other end zone. That is a long way. This is a lot of work for them, but they're enthusiastic. They've been rejuvenized. They're full of energy now because they've got the revelation that Christ is working with them. Next scriptures. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Now, who do you suppose told Jesus to start a fire? I believe it was his father. I do. Honestly, I do. Scriptures tell us that Jesus listened to his father. He didn't do anything, didn't say anything, didn't see or hear his father say or do. So when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there on it with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. One man dragging 153 large fish? We're talking about maybe several hundred pounds. 
How does one man do this? He's got the revelation. He's got the revelation of the Lord. Large fish, it says, a 153. But even with so many, I love this part, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Let me ask you a question. How did they catch these fish? Was it by their own working? No, they came up empty working themselves. It was by the grace of God that they got this haul. It was by the grace of God that they caught 153 fish. And the fact that it tells us that the net was not even torn, you know what it tells me? It tells me nothing slips through the net of grace. And everything he catches, nothing slips through it. He holds on to everything. Jesus showed the disciples where the fish were, and Jesus wants to show us where the Father's heart is. You see, while the disciples were exhausted from fishing all night and licking their wounds from catching nothing, Jesus was cooking bread and fish on the shore. I told you, he's a good God. Did Jesus have more in mind than breakfast? I think he did. What was Jesus doing? Number one, he was stripping away the condemnation. How would you feel if you're a professional fisherman and you have fished all night long and caught nothing? You'd feel condemned. I used to feel beat up when I'd go out fishing and fish all day long, six, seven, eight, ten hours, get sunburned like crazy, and not even get a bite. I remember that would just make me feel just terrible. Now look, these guys are fishing with a net. That means fish don't even have to be hungry. They just have to be present. And yet they couldn't catch even a minnow. Nothing! Came up empty! So the first thing I believe that Jesus is doing here in all of his goodness, he's stripping away the condemnation. He's demonstrating the virtue of oneness. You have the ability to hear me and understand that it's me who's talking. When I said, cast your net on the right side of the boat, you did that. And guess what? You found 153 large fish. Jesus is removing the binoculars of defeat from the disciples' eyes, showing them how one plus one still equals one, showing them the Father's loving and gracious and tender heart. Do you remember what he told his disciples? He said, if you've seen me, you've seen my Father. My Father does this kind of stuff all the time. Jesus was essentially saying, guys, I didn't come by this morning to show you that I can cook. I came by this morning to show you my Father. This is the virtue of oneness. So we have not understood historical and cultural and literal biblical context. Therefore, you know what we've done? We've split hairs, we've split personalities, and we've split congregations over the simplest of scriptures. Take heart, my friends. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. Because even in the midst of our poorest decisions, the net does not tear. The net does not split. Nothing escapes when we are caught in the net of grace. So one of the greatest hindrances that I've seen to resting in Christ is when we don't take into account of the separation of the old covenant and the new covenant. Therefore, you know what it does? It keeps the father at a distance. We often fall into condemnation when we feel like we've missed the mark and that condemnation hides our morning sun with rain clouds. But friends, may I remind us that the condemnation that we feel is not from our covenant. Jesus didn't come to show us the failures of life. He came to show us the father of life, his daddy. So let's ask the question, how does a believer reconcile the truth in his or her heart that condemnation is never from the Father? How do you reconcile that in your own heart, that condemnation is never from the Father? Because you say, man, Mark, there's times it sure does feel like it's from him. Have you ever heard of phantom pain? Phantom pain is pain that feels like it's coming from a body part that's no longer there. <laughs> like a foot that's gone. Or like a hand that's been amputated. Or even an organ that's been removed. 
Doctors used to believe that this post-amputation phenomenon was a kind of a psychological problem. They believed that you were just kind of losing your mind, that it was all in your minds, but now the experts agree that uh, there's something here, that these sensations are real. It's called phantom pain. Phantom pain will make you feel like you need to scratch where there is no itch and clip where there is no nail. Listen to me. I'm not going to deny that we don't feel condemnation at times, but I am emphatically denying that it's from God. You see, a limb with gangrene is like sin or condemnation. It was simply cut away. It was discarded as hazardous material. It's gone, friends. Your sin has been removed. It has been taken away. And believing that condemnation is from God is like phantom pain. Real pain, but the pain that you're experiencing is not coming from the source that you think it's coming from. Okay, so the condemnation that we experience is real, but it's not coming from God. It's not coming from the spirit. The spirit does not condemn us. You do not see that in the new covenant at all. Nowhere do you see that. As we embrace the incontrovertible and undeniable and unparalleled virtues of the father's heart, this phantom pain will subside. Phantom pain will subside as we cuddle up next to the truth. That we are one with Christ. Don't you love cuddling up next to something? Whether it's a little grandchild, whether it's your spouse, whether it's one of your children. I think that's one of the things we love to do the most. Just cuddle up next to him. And I'm telling you, when you cuddle up next to the truth that we are one with Christ and that we are one with the Father and that we are one with the Holy Spirit. It's like saying this. Three in one plus one is still one. Boy, the internet audience is going to have trouble with that one. Do you see that? Three in one plus one plus me is still one. We are one with Christ. One with him. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, I love this scripture. Therefore, there is now no, see how big that no is up there? No condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. How much condemnation do you see right there? (laughs) No condemnation. The word no comes from the Greek word odice. This is the Greek word behind our English word no. Now odice is a compound Greek word. In order to have a compound word, you have to take at least two words, maybe three, maybe four, and you have to put them together. And so odice is made from two Greek words. The first one is ude, which means not. And the second one is pronounced heis, which means one. (laughs) Do you see that? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not one condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not just not today, not one ever. In fact, the scripture is more emphatic about it. If you look it up in your Greek concordance, it will literally say not even one. (laughs) Not even one. So let's review. How do we know that condemnation is never from God? Because Romans 8 and verse 1 uses the word odice in front of the word condemnation, which tells us emphatically that there is not even one condemnation from God for the believer in Jesus Christ, it is Christ minus condemnation equals the virtue of oneness. And that begins to sing and ring and dance in your heart, friends, when you see the truth, not even one condemnation. I just get very happy about that. Not even one. So the next time you're feeling condemned, Friends, I'm telling you, phantom pain is at loose in you somewhere, but you cuddle up next to truth. You cuddle up next to the scriptures in context that the old covenant was made obsolete. There's nothing left to condemn you. You cuddle up to that truth and embrace that truth and enjoy the truth. In John chapter 17, verses 10 through 12, we find these words. Jesus said these words. He's back to praying. Remember that big prayer he was praying in John 17? Here's part of it. He says, all I have is yours. He's talking to his father. And all you have is mine. And glory has come to me 
through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one (laughs) as we are one. This is Jesus' language. He says, I want them to be one exactly the way we are one. And I don't only want them to be one in their spirit. That's easy. We can take care of that in a moment. I never think about my father as distant or separated from me. I want them to be one in their soul, in their emotional realm. He says, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in my name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept. And then he says, and none of them is lost. Do you know what the word is behind that word none? It's udice. Not even one. He says, none of them is lost. But now see if you don't understand context. This gets a little tricky here because it says, but the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. Well, sounds to me like one was lost. You said none, but one. That's a little confusing to my brain. If I said to you, I want you to do all the dishes, but one, well, then I wouldn't be doing all the dishes. So it seems a little confusing there. Let's ask the question. Is there a contradictory in these scriptures? Because it says that Jesus kept all the ones that his father gave him, But in the same breath of Scripture, it tells us that the son of perdition was lost. So let's ask the question. If you loan me your car and I lost the keys, whose keys would I have lost? My keys or your keys? I didn't lose my keys. I lost your keys. Judas was in Jesus' possession, physically speaking, But Judas's heart had never experienced the virtue of oneness. Do you see that now? He had never experienced the virtue of oneness in his possession, but had never experienced the virtue of oneness. One of the 12, yes. In fact, that's what it calls him, one of the 12, but not one of his. Therefore, the scripture is correct. I have kept the ones you have given me. None are lost. So Jesus is referring to Judas. We see that truth in John chapter 6, verses 69 through 71. Now this is early in Jesus' ministry. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. Early into the ministry, he could already see into them, and he says, One of you is is a devil. In other words, he was saying, look, I know all things because I have this omniscient mind. The Father feeds this to me. The Father tells me these things. And I can see that one of you is a devil and in the end will betray me ultimately. He met Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the 12 was later to betray him. So I understand the confusion that takes place when The Old Covenant is mixed with the New Covenant, and when scriptures are taken out of context, it's a real enemy to our heart at times. But Jesus came to clear all of that up for us, friends. Jesus came to turn the children's hearts back to their fathers. Jesus came to magnify His Father. Jesus came to make us one with Him. Jesus came to show us the Father. How did Jesus do that? By demonstrating His total dependence upon His Father. Dependence upon his father to perform miracles and do healings. Dependence upon his father to know what words to speak in every given situation. In fact, Jesus was even dependent, solely dependent upon his father to raise him from the grave. He said, Father, I trust you. I'm dependent upon you to do that. Jesus wanted to take that which was at one time distant and bring it up very close and personal. And how did he do this? He did this by shedding his blood on the cross, thereby rendering the old covenant obsolete and making us one with him, making us one with Christ. We see that truth in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verse 13. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the Father's heart, friends. If there would have been another way to us to be brought near to him, he would have found it. He's a mastermind. Nothing escapes him. The fact that Jesus died for us on the cross means that is the only way to redeem man. There was no other way, friends. There was no backup plan. This was the only way that God would lose his darling of heaven for a moment to the grave so that he could redeem man, buy him out of there, make him one with him. So beautiful, so powerful. We are as close to the Father as we are ever going to get. As we were baptized into Jesus' death, his blood became our blood. His spirit became our spirit. His resurrection life became our resurrection life. His grace is our grace. His righteousness is our righteousness. His glory has become our glory. His view and opinion of the Father should definitely be our view and opinion of the Father. His no condemnation is our no condemnation. His covenant is our covenant. His Father has become our Father, and His oneness with the Father is our oneness with the Father. Friends, you could say it very simply like this. Three plus one equals one for eternity. The words show us the Father only surface in one exchange throughout the entire Bible, yet these very words were the quintessence of Jesus' ministry, his earthly ministry. How many of you know it's been said that actions speak louder than words, right? And Jesus' actions were always speaking. They were always engaged. He was always doing something. I don't believe he was always the garrulous person that we think he was, talking all the time. There were times he just chose very few words. He didn't need to have long diatribes and dialogues with people. He just spoke truth into a situation. What was his heart? His heart was to set people free so that they could be one with his father. Jesus' actions spoke with great volume as he demonstrated that he had come from a good, good father, a father that loves humanity, a father that is compassionate and gracious, a father that is generous and compassionate, a father that is faithful and just, a father that is merciful and kind. These are but just a handful of the virtues of the Father, and he's stuffed full of virtues, good virtues. Jesus knew that oneness was found, listen to me carefully, in the revelation of his Father's love and his Father's grace, but trying to convince the religious leaders to abandon the old covenant and their old ways of thinking, I'm telling you, was no easy task. Jesus knew that it was more than just information that changed people. It was revelation that brought about the change. See, when Jesus spoke to them on the boat and said, cast your net on the right side, that could be considered just information. Information was not the, what brought about the change. It was the fact that they responded. They believed the man on the shore. They weren't just trying to please him. Look, there's a whole bunch of them. There's one of him. If he gets too lippy, they'll take care of business when they get to the shore. No, there was a revelation that hit their heart. This guy knows what he's talking about. I don't know how he knows. But he knows. So let's ask the question. Why did the Pharisee Nicodemus' heart change? the night he came to see Jesus. Was it the amount of information that Jesus gave him that night? I don't think so. I'll tell you what changed Nicodemus's heart. It was the revelation that he received when Jesus shared with him how he could experience oneness with God. If Nicodemus were to find this everlasting oneness, and if Nicodemus desired to be free from condemnation, then by grace, through faith alone, he would have to come to the very man that he came to see late that night, namely Jesus Christ. In John chapter 3, we find the words that were spoken by Jesus into Nicodemus' heart. John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. 
for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him puts their trust in him, relies upon him. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. Do you see that? Did you see that? No condemnation, remember? Not even one. Scripture says God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. That means whoever has the revelation that I can put my trust in this man for eternal life, that man is not condemned. But whosoever does not believe, in other words, the person who refuses to put their trust in Christ, the one that leads you to the Father, the one that's one with the Father, that person who refuses to believe in him stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. No condemnation from God. You're already condemned. You've condemned yourself. The enemy's condemned you. Friends, Jesus did not come to condemn us. He came to save us. Moreover, Jesus came to turn our hearts toward his Father. And in doing so, he magnified his Father's love and he exemplified the virtue of oneness. My final scriptures, John chapter 14, verses 1 through 9. Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Then Jesus says, you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. No one, literally not even one, nobody comes to me. Nobody comes to my Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not even one. Friends, I'm glad He's made it that way. I am not that I would will that anybody would perish, but Jesus paid an amazing sacrifice on the cross. And if we could get to the Father by any other way than going through Christ, what was this about? You've got to ask yourself, be honest with yourself, what was this about? It would be foolish to die for somebody if there was another way. Jesus said, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. Isn't that the spirit of oneness right there? He said, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. How? Because you've seen me. Philip said, Lord, <laughs> show us the Father. And that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Friends, grace, the gospel of grace, the gospel of the finished work has been there the whole time under this new covenant, all your entire life. And you keep saying, show us this and show us that. No, he's already showed you everything he needs to show you in his finished work. Don't need to look anyplace else. Friends, when Philip asked Jesus to show them the Father, Thomas and I want to see the Father. He likes to doubt a lot. Let's see the Father here now. Let's see that he's real. 
I had to think about that last night. And I thought, why would he ask that question? Jesus just got through telling you, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Was it curiosity? Or was it because Jesus just got through telling them about the mansions in heaven? And if we can see the Father, maybe we can get a sneak preview of our mansion at the same time. What was it? Whatever the reason for wanting to see the Father, Philip had missed the point of Jesus' entire ministry. The point that Jesus wanted to make with them is that he is the way to the Father. That was Jesus' heart. That was his point. Quit asking about all these details. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. That's the point, Philip. He wanted them to see. He's the way to the Father. He is the truth of the Father. And he is the life of the Father. Jesus wanted them to know that they had already seen the Father in him. This is the virtue of oneness. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. God is gracious. God is loving. He's a tender-hearted Father, and He has been so from the beginning of time. We see His great love demonstrated for us through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. He is the one that wants to heal the pain of broken homes. He is the one who wants to heal the pain of the father fracture. He is the one who wants to heal emotional wounds and physical scars and psychological trauma. Even the one who wants to heal all of this phantom pain. I'm talking about the kind of pain that attacks our souls with condemnation. Pain that feels like it's coming from one source, but in reality, it's coming from another. It's never from God the Father. May I remind us that in Christ, there is not even one condemnation. Friends, let's cuddle up to the truth that we are one in Christ. We are one in the Holy Spirit. We are one with the Father, three in one plus one is still one. The scriptures encourage us to just keep thinking about the message you heard when he first gave his life to you. The scriptures also tell us that we will always be one in our hearts with the Son and with the Father. He has given us an undying love for him. That is Ephesians chapter 6. And what was the message we first heard? What was that message? And this is what Christ himself promised us. He promised to give us eternal life. That is the message you need to record and play over and over again in your heart. Friends, the doxa glory that God gave to Jesus, Jesus also gave to us. Therefore, our view and opinion of the Father should be shaped around the truth that we are one with him in spirit. We are never alone. We can never be separated from our Father. He never leaves home without us. Isn't that beautiful? Philip said to Jesus, Lord, could you just show us the Father? Show us the Father. Jesus responded with these words. He that hath seen me hath seen my Father. Friends, let not your heart be troubled. Because in the same manner, when the Father sees Jesus, he sees us. That is the virtue of oneness. Father, I thank you so much. I thank you, Father, that I can stand and I can boldly proclaim that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Not even one. I can cuddle up next to the truth that my daddy will never leave me. He'll never forsake me. 
Father, I thank you that the scriptures have made Jesus so lovely, but Jesus himself said, if you've seen me, you've seen my Father. All this loveliness is on my Father and in my Father. And so I thank you for that, Father. I thank you, Father, as I look at people that know you, people that are born again, people that are one in spirit with you, I can see the Father in them. I thank you, Father, that I can see the expressions of your qualities, your virtues in people, and I can hear you coming through their very words. Father, I thank you that the glory, the view and opinion that Jesus has toward you is the same glory that Jesus gave us, so we can have that same view and opinion of you. And Father, as we get our self effort out of the way as we quit trying to cast our own nets and wearing ourselves out we just listen to the voice of oneness speaking to us from the shores of our heart saying cast your net on the right side and father i thank you that the harvest was plentiful the harvest was beautiful and the net was not torn father what a picture of your grace it's all by grace and we have walked around it because we've not understood context We've taken it out of historical and cultural and literal context, and we've shaped it into our own belief system and our own doctrine has done great damage, great harm to the body of Christ. But I thank you, Father, that this gospel of grace, this finished work of grace is beginning to take ground. It's beginning to move across the earth, and it's so powerful and so beautiful to behold. And I thank you, Father, as you're drawing people out of that phantom pain, that pain that they're always chasing this and that, trying to scratch where they don't have limbs daddy i thank you as you're drawing them out of that emotional pain they are left there to say hey it turns out three in one plus one is still one that is the virtue of oneness in jesus name amen